0: And in fact, if you look that up, use Bing, that uh, search engine. It gives you, uh, I guess for English as second language speakers, kind of some insight into what that phrase means in modern English. So you see that graphic, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Definition, you cannot make people change their established patterns of opinion and behavior. Now that statement, I've heard my entire life, you can't teach old dogs new tricks, May or may not be true about dogs, but it doesn't apply to us. Because number one, none of us are dogs. I think we're all human beings. And more importantly, God is in the people changing business. Uh, he regenerates not just to give us a you get out of hell free card. He gener- regenerates us so that we can reproduce the character of Christ by his grace. But it uh, is a little bit like watching sausage or laws being made. It can be a a long, ugly process, but we're going to see some remarkable character transformation in the older brothers of Joseph verified today as we come to chapter 44. We're going to see the ten older brothers, the guys that back at the beginning of the story, Genesis 37, 22 years before what we're going to be reading about, had plotted, just total told, told cold-blooded plotting to kill their younger brother, And then when uh, Judah realized there were some slave traders just happened to go by where they were camping, he said, let's not just kill him. We're not going to get anything out of that. Let's sell him to these slave traders on their way to Egypt. We can make some money out of this, and they're going to work him to death anyway. We'll never see him again. We're going to see those 10 guys who happily were willing to kill or sell their brother into slavery so he'd be worked to death. We're going to see these guys are the same men but they are now very different people, and they're different because of the grace of God working in their lives. So love this chapter. Uh, chapter 45 is even better, but chapter 44 is one of my favorite. Let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word today. Uh, and this can be information you can play with, or it can be transforming truth, and you can be Ethan, or you can be Tim, or you can be Stan, or Jeff Bridges, whoever that is back there. Uh, or Julie Demerson, or even uh, an old aging pastor, Brad McCoy. And you can process this just at the level of the uh, intellect. But when you embrace it with your full heart, it goes from being gnosis to epinosis, from information to transforming truth. And you got to be your own number one spiritual science project. It's easy sometimes to listen to a convicting message from the Word and say, boy, I wish my wife were here, instead of in Tulsa to hear me preach this, you know. Not that I would ever be tempted to think that. Or, boy, I wish that my boss would hear this message or whatever. you got to be your number one spiritual science project. That's the way God designed it. So, Bobby, we'll even say a few things that uh, can apply to you. Okay, Robert? Her name is Bobby Dudley, but I call her Robert for short. (laughs) But as we pray that we'll be teachable to God's word, this is spiritual brain surgery we're doing here. Uh, Let's pray for those who protect and serve us like our active military people, Peace officers, firefighters, folks like that. And uh, David Demerson, lead us in prayer in that direction, would you please? Thank you. Um, for our abstract thought warmer up, you're going to have to listen quick because we have one really fast statement to fully warm that up for you. This is what I told Debbie about an hour before we headed down to DFW, spent the night, and then. Had to be at the airport. What what was that? Can 4.05 a.m. Had to be at the counter uh, on Tuesday the 14th. Remember that, Stephanie? A night you'll never forget, right? And that really got good. But this is what I told Debbie right before we started to do that. It's going to be in the knock-knock form. I love this. So I'm going to say knock-knock and you do your thing. Okay, so knock-knock. Yeah. So good. Alpaca. Alpaca the trunk. You pack of the suitcase. Alright, we're looking at this amazing saga of the life of Joseph and it's all true, inspired and preserved so we could read it today in the 21st century, events in the 19th century BC and we're seeing overall the redeeming power of perseverance and forgiveness in in Murray Powers' life or in Angel Wiley's life. Or in Brad McCoy's life as we live out our faith fully under resting in the providence and the sovereignty of God. And it's such a joy to have the entire Powers family you got the, the, I mean, Wendy, Sydney, you got a beautiful family. And then there's Murray, but, uh, <laughs> now I just, I just was thinking about this. Uh, I say that because Murray and I are a lot alike in the sense that I'm, I, I'm one of four children and the other three were beauty queens and they were western heirs and cheerleaders and all that stuff. And I would say they got the good looks and I got the brains, but you know, that's just me. Now, of course I was the oldest. So, um then you're kind of next to last, right? In the pecking order. So anyway, Murray's a, a great guy. But yeah, this has been preserved not just to give us an interesting, unbelievable story, but to teach us theological lessons that we need to apply in our lives. You know, Sonya is my personal favorite singer, and uh, one song she sings a lot but not often enough has the line, "When when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. And that's one of the best ways I could summarize what the Christian life is supposed to be about, is keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, right? So anyway, yeah, that's what the overall story is saying. But before we look at chapter 44, we need to put it in context. So let me try to summarize what we've seen so far. The story begins back in chapter 37. This 17-year-old boy, uh, teenager, Goes from favorite son, where his dad is giving him special clothing to denote how much he loves him better than everybody else. And he has dreams about the whole family bowing down to him, which really made the other brothers envious and hateful toward him. But we see him change from favorite son to foreign slave. Because as we said, uh, when Joseph goes out to check on how the brothers are doing on an assignment, uh, they say, hey, let's kill him. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. And we can uh, explain that a wild animal killed him. And they're going to throw him in a pit, and they're deciding how they're going to kill him. And then these traitors come by and say, let's just, and Judah. It's important to know Judah. That name's going to be very prominent today in chapter 44. So we're not going to get anything out of that. Let's just sell him. They'll work him to death in Egypt, and we'll be rich, and we can lie about it to dad. He'll never know the wiser. So that's how that starts. The 17-year-old boy goes from being favorite son of Jacob, as an Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like Jesus is going to be related to all these people, to a foreign slave in Egypt, with the expectation there's a 90% chance he's going to be working in a salt mine and he'll be dead in 18 months or less. Next chapter, 38, it's a parenthesis and we see Joseph's plus R, righteous character and faithfulness, trans- contrasted, I should say, to Judas. There's Judah again. Judas, the guy that said, let's sell him, not let's kill him. Let's get some money on this thing. And uh, since we're all adults here, all the kids are back at Super Summer, I'm just going to tell you straight up, chapter 38, uh, says that Judah had sexual relations with his daughter-in-law and got her pregnant, but only because he thought she was a Canaanite prostitute. That's the only reason he did that. That's what, that's what we're told. So this guy sure doesn't look like one of the found, founders of uh, the nation Israel that's going to lead to the Messiah, does he, if you saw that? That's chapter 38, just a parenthesis. The Joseph story continues in 39. Uh, Joseph is put on the auction block in Memphis, Egypt, not Memphis, Tennessee, uh, fully expecting to end up in a salt mine, and instead he gets inside work, no heavy lifting. He ends up being a servant inside a big government leader's uh, household, and he's such a good servant, this guy makes him his chief of staff, his administrative assistant kind of thing. So we see Joseph from slave to servant servant, who's a household supervisor and a VIP, but guess what happens? Things get grisly again, don't they, Kyleen? What happens? Potiphar, his boss's wife, is uh, attempts to seduce him multiple times, and Joseph has too much integrity to do that, and she gets so frustrated, she accuses him of attempted sexual assault, and he ends up in prison for something he didn't do. So that's chapter 39. Uh, and yet even there, because he's such a faithful guy, The uh, the warden makes Joseph his administrative assistant as a trustee in the prison. So you can't keep this guy down. Chapter 40, we have new friends with big dreams in the prison. Two people that are close to Pharaoh and the government end up in this same prison where Joseph is, and we see the same old faithful Joseph. These guys have dreams. Joseph's able to interpret their dreams. Remember, we saw Joseph with two dreams in chapter 37 about the family, his family bowing to him. Now... In chapter 40, we've got his two new friends having dreams. He interprets them. They're fulfilled literally. And we see that Joseph deals with all kinds of tests. You know, and this is the thing. You're going to have all kinds of... You know, Jesus says, uh, uh, you know, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom, right? It's not going to be easy living in this world for anybody, especially for Christians, especially where our culture is right now. But there's only two kinds of tests you're going to have to face, Betty. Adversity tests and prosperity tests. And Joseph, we see Joseph in adversity and in prosperity. Every time something ter- terrible happens to him, he, he rises to the top and eventually becomes prime minister of Egypt. But both of those tests can tempt you to drift away from the Lord instead of staying close to the Lord. The book of Hebrews is all about adversity test. I, I call that operation doubt, pout, and drop out. Some people want to do that when they have something bad happen to them. Um, I would say read first Peter, which is written to people who had unexpected adversity. And that book will straighten you out really quick. If you want more, read the book of Job. But, uh, the other kind of test and, uh, boy, you know, since we've got people like Joel Olstein telling you this is always God's will, always be healthy, happy and I guess white and rich, you know, in America is kind of the thing. Uh, the prosperity test, uh, quite often trips up Christians. Uh, that you wouldn't expect because they become kind of impressed with themselves and they get some um, expendable time, expendable money. And rather than seeing doubt, pout, drop out, you see puff up and slowly drift away. But the antidote to both those kind of tests, okay, when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, you tie it on in faith and you keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. That's what that one stands for, okay? Acronym for the newsletter possibly, right? Keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. So, Joseph, you see this throughout. And so, new friends, same old faithful Joseph, And but here's the kicker. He tells the butler, uh, hey, when you go back to the pharaoh, because I've interpreted your dream and you're going to be uh, reinstated to your position in the administration, and when you get back to the pharaoh, tell him I'm in here and I'm innocent. You know, Say a good word for me so I can get out of prison. So guess what happens? Butler goes back to his job and promptly tells the pharaoh about Joseph, Right? You know, I don't think he maliciously didn't do it. He just kind of forgot about it. He he landed on his feet. Everything's fine. He was appreciative to Joseph' input for about five minutes. But uh, I'll tell you the truth. Sometimes you you know, you're a pastor and you kind of do stuff you think think you should do for people. Uh, but I don't do anything for anybody thinking they're going to put me on a pedestal because the half life of pastoral good deeds the benefit is about 12 hours. You give it like 48 hours. I don't even remember you were were at the the deathbed of their person or whatever it was. And not, Not that it matters, but I don't think Joseph is motivated that way. But here's the kicker. You go from chapter 40 to chapter 41. It says, two years later, two years after Joseph had interpreted that guy's dream and he's reinstated, the Pharaoh has a pair of dreams with one message. And suddenly, the butler says, hey, I knew a guy in prison who can interpret dreams. Nobody can tell him, Pharaoh what that thing means, and he knows those dreams are significant. So I pulled Joseph out of the prison. What do they do with him? They clean him up. Boy, Dustin, you'd have to shave your beard if you were Joseph, because the Pharaohs didn't like facial hair, because they were all wet. They were all wet about stuff like that. So they pull Joseph out there, he interprets the guy's dream, and he says, look, we're going to have seven years of bumper crops starting like right now, and then we're going to have seven years with almost no crops, and that's going to affect the whole region, that famine. So if I were you, and I'm not you, Pharaoh, which is a good thing for you, but if I were you, that's what he said, um, you need to start storing up 20% of the grain so we're going to be able to ride this out and also help people with our uh, surplus that we're going to have. So Pharaoh is so impressed by this guy who he just pulled out of prison to to interpret the dream. He says, you know what? I can't think of anybody better to administer this project, so let's put him in charge of this entire gigantic government project. And what do you know about government efficiency? It's an oxymoron, right? There ain't no such thing. Like jumbo shrimp, you know? But this guy made it work. I guess it is possible. And that's kind of a miracle that that the program worked. And so now... When we get to uh, chapter 42, we fast forward. Joseph's 30 when he becomes prime minister, gets out of prison, becomes the leader of this food-saving program. And now we've got the seven years of good harvest, and now we're in the second year of the famine. And we're going to see Joseph's family, you know, the guys that 22 years before sold him into slavery, they show up trying to buy food because they've run out of food in Canaan. And Joseph begins to test their character. There's no vindictiveness. There's no hatred. He's already forgiven them. He believes in sovereignty of God. He's going to let vengeance be gods and punishment will be gods for those guys. But these guys are not the same people they were. They were before. They're totally changed, but he's going to verify that. So he doesn't totalize them based on one thing they did, but neither does he totally trust them. And he puts them through some character tests. And today, uh, you know, after that first uh, trip, they go back home and they tell, hey, we got to meet the guy in charge of the food program in Egypt and he sold us her food. And uh, But he found out that uh, we've got a younger brother and he said, we can't buy any more food unless we bring the younger brother back with us. And Joseph, said, uh, the father of Jacob says, why did you tell him you had a brother? You know, he said, we didn't tell him. He, he asked us, do you have a father? Is he still alive? Do you have any other brothers? Got a younger brother? So boom. And guess what? He's holding on to Simeon, one of one of the other ten brothers. One of them is being held in a holding tank in Egypt. So they go back home with the food after the first visit, and they're going to be able to ride the famine for a couple of weeks, a couple of months. But they say, we're going to have to go back to get more food fairly soon, and we've got to bring Benjamin with us. And what does Jacob say? He's not going to go. I'm not going to let Jacob go because you know what happened to Joseph. He went to visit you guys 20 years ago, and he disappeared. But then the next chapter says, you know what? They run out of food, and Jacob says, go ahead and take him. And the brothers say, we'll take care of them. We'll do everything we possibly can. And that's kind of where we left it last time. And we're going to see a final character test here in uh, chapter 44 today. We're going to see uh, the big brothers and their relationship with Benjamin is tested. And it breaks down like this. The setup for this final character test, the execution, that may be a bad choice of words, uh, of the final character test and then the immediate aftermath of the final character test. Let's look at this setup verses one and two. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Now the brothers had come with Benjamin. Joseph saw that it really shook him up. He wanted to. He went and left the room and cried because he was so happy his little brother had not been whacked by the big brothers like Joseph himself had been. And he has a big banquet for them at his house. And then he even gives Benjamin five times more food than the other brothers so that Joseph can see how the brothers react to that. And just to show you how great it was, look at verse 33 and 34 of chapter 43. This is where we left it last time. They're having this banquet at Joseph's house, and they weren't sure if Joseph was going to uh, give their brother back, Simeon, to them or be nice to him this time, but he's very nice. He's very gracious. they having a big banquet. Simeon's here. Benjamin's there this time. Now it just so happened that they were seated based on their birth order, and they thought that was a little bit weird, you know. How did Joseph know that? He's their brother, so he made sure that happened. Then look what happens, verse 34 of chapter 43. He took portions to them from his own table. The, the guys, the brothers got the very best food during that banquet. I'm sure, I'm sure it was uh, ribeye steaks, like I said last week. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So he had five steaks, more than he needed, and five cake pops. The dessert for the other guys was one cake pop. But Benjamin got five cake pops. And Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph. And he hasn't spoken Hebrew to him. He's speaking to him through translator. He's watching this to see if there's any resentment. And look what it says. I love this. Uh, he took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as the other's. So they, the big brothers, feasted and drank freely with him, and they are so happy that they're not all been thrown into prison with Simeon, that they've actually released Simeon, that they're actually going to give him food, they're actually going to be able to go back home. Nothing could be brighter, nothing could be more wonderful. And then, verse 44, verse 1, then he, Joseph, is preparing, setting up the final character test. So far they look like they're passing quite well. Then he commanded his house steward, his administrative assistant, saying, fill the men's sack with food. That's what they came to buy food. Remember, they brought the price for the food plus uh, double the price of the food plus the the money that had been returned to them mysteriously the previous time before. So they've got plenty of money, plenty of food, put all that money back in their sacks, put as much food as they can carry on their donkeys. uh, And then here's the kicker. Look at this, Dustin. Verse two, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest brother, okay, Benjamin. Daddy didn't even want Benjamin to leave. They talked him into taking him because they said the man won't sell us food unless we take Benjamin back. So Benjamin's there, everything's fine, but now we're going to set him up to look like maybe the brothers should abandon him to slavery like they abandoned Joseph 22 years before. So take my cup, the silver cup put it in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, of Benjamin's, as long, along with his money for his, his grain. And he, the administrative assistant, did as Joseph had told him. So he's setting this up, not out of vindictiveness, but to see how the older brothers would react. And here it comes. Look at verse 3, the execution of the final character test. As soon as it was light like that next morning, the men were sent away with their donkeys, full of food, full of all this money. They don't even probably know that yet. Um, then they'd just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, get up, follow them in, take a posse with you kind of thing. It was in the Old West. I'm sure there's a bunch of muscle with it. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Oh my goodness, this is bad. Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. Uh-oh, Joseph is doing pagan divination? Uh That's verse 5. Verse 15 dropped down. Joseph said to them a little bit later, What is this you've done? Don't you know that a man like me in my position can find out what's going on, can find out things by divination? Now That's a little weird, isn't it? Um, let me tell you what Ryrie says. You can pick what study Bible you want, and you don't even have to have a study Bible if you don't want to. But I think study Bibles is really helpful, but the way these things work is you've got the biblical text on the top of the page, and you've got a line, a horizontal line, and under that you've got a commentator or a series of scholars or whatever giving you some insight, some commentary on the text to try to clarify things. So I find Bible's, uh, study Bibles very healthy and helpful. Uh, I wouldn't get the New World Translation Study Bible, because that's the Jehovah's Witnesses false translation. But just about, and, and by the way, you know, you can go by the author's name, but you can also go by the publisher's name. I mean, if you buy something from Zondervan, uh, it's a, it's a standard mainline, uh, evangelical publishing house. They're going to clear everything. Occasionally they've made a mistake or two, but usually 95% of the time, you know, it's fine. You ask me or ask James or somebody. Uh, what, Baker, Moody, those are other, are a lot of good, uh, publishers out there. But anyway, Dr. Ryrie, This is the Ryrie study Bible I'm using. Says this, this statement, verse five, is not this the cup that my Lord drinks from in which he uses for divination? Ryrie says this statement made in order to attach special significance of the cup, that there's no doubt this is Joseph's cup. That's the main thing. Was part of the situation Joseph contrived in order to test his brother's character. That's the whole thing, okay? He's just kind of stepping into those, those steps. He's going to clarify it later. Um, the question was, would the older brothers seize on this opportunity to get rid of Benjamin, since he's implicated as the guy who stole the cup, or had their hearts indeed been changed so they would stand with him? And guess what? They're going to stand with him. Now, the MacArthur Study Bible says something very similar, although they point out that... uh Hydromancy, hydro for water, uh, was the exact kind of divination referred to here. It was a form of ancient Near Eastern divination where you're trying to use physical objects to dis- discern the future apart from God, uh, made use of vessels of water. Objects or liquids put in the water generated patterns that were thought to reveal the future. They would read things into the, look at the tea leaves kind of thing or whatever powder they put in there. They look at patterns and that means this is going to happen, that's going to happen, as if they could figure it out from that. This description here, that I use this to practice divination, um, in Joseph's statement, verse 15, do not indicate that he actually practiced pagan divination. This description was necessary to the ruse, I prefer what Robert calls it, uh, if I can find it here. Joseph contrived this situation is the ideal. Um, they don't know he's a Hebrew believer yet, right? Uh, that uh, did not indicate he actually practiced pagan divination. This description was necessary to the ruse and identified the silver cup as a treasured possession. Uh And then the, the note says, Joseph received revelation from God alone. And I say amen to that. So that's what's going on there. And I think that's a nice brief description of that. But anyway, look at verse 6. When he caught up with them, then we got to stop. Who's he there? Joseph's administrative assistant, right? Who's them? The brothers, you know, 11 of the 12. Joseph's the guy in the mansion, sending the first guy. When he, Joseph's representative, caught up with them, the 11 sons of Jacob, he repeated these words to them. Hey, why'd you do this? Evil for good. You've taken our guy's cup. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? They're in the dark. They know they didn't do anything like that. Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mass of our sacks the first time when we came back home. The first time we found out you returned our money, we brought that back. We paid you double. They haven't checked their bags to realize all this money's still in their sack too. Cause Joseph's not trying to make money out of this. He's trying to help them. He's their, their brother, right? Then he says, or they say, so why? We have no motive to steal silver or gold from you guys. We don't have any room in our, uh, in our, uh, suitcase either. Uh, you know what the most traumatic part of the Israel trip was? At least for the 36 of us that ended up flying Air Canada. Whether or not our suitcase was 50 pounds or less. Cause guess what? If it weighs more than 50 pounds, you'd have to have more than that. Guess what's, guess what the fee was? Remember Carol? It a was $100, wasn't it? That, that, yeah, hundred dollars? Wouldn't that be nice? So anyway, but it's amazing, you know. I'm so weak anymore; I can't pick up fifty pounds with my hand anymore. I used to be able to. You know, but so we have two ways to determine that. Uh, I just kind of pick it up. If I can pick it up, I know it's less than fifty pounds. And then Debbie bought one of these little scales and stuff, so so and double checked it. And sure enough, it was just forty-four pounds. I could barely get it up there. Um, baptizing the the most, the second most traumatic part. Was baptizing, uh, Dustin, because I thought, I when I baptized, uh, your husband, David, who's solid muscle, man. I mean, he did he doesn't look it, but he weighs 300 pounds solid muscle. I remember, you know, we, we had the water, somebody overfilled the tank, and I had to get him way down there to get him under. Uh, actually it was the other way around, I guess it was low. Oh uh, yeah, I got him down here to get him under the water, he disappears, and I barely got him up. I never told him that, okay? And I kind of pulled a muscle there, you know, and it ruined my my golf swing. But that's my excuse. So I thought, man, it's going to be tough. But what the Jordan River now has concrete in this portion of the of the <laughs> underneath on the ground there where there used to be a riverbed now it's concrete with pipes sticking out of it, all kinds of weird things. I mean, no wonder Jesus baptized there because you could hang stuff on your pipes and stuff. But I think that's fairly fairly recent. But um, I asked the guide, okay, now where should I go? Here, here, then she said, Now go between these two things. I went there, I said, No, no, don't go there, go back behind that. So boom. I went down I went, Oh great. You know, what's gonna happen now? Because I felt like it was like this. But I was like two feet below where the people were gonna stand. So Dustin gets in line first, which was actually answered correctly. I thought I better have all my strength working and get you out of there. So when I went down, I realized And this is not important. This is just inside baseball stuff. You don't, no other preacher will tell you. You have to think about. Because the symbolism and the significance was important. But I realized as soon as I got him under, I didn't have to get him down here like I had David and I barely got him up. I still had all my muscle mass, what's left of it, right next to him. So I came out, I felt like a Superman. (laughs) You know? Just hanging around Dustin makes you stronger. I just tell you that. But anyway. Yeah, so all this stuff is happening. Um, he said, uh, what does my Lord say such this thing? You know, we have no motive to do this. And now watch this. They're so certain, they none of them did this. They say in verse 9, if any of your servants, any of us, is found to, to have it, we know we didn't steal it. There's no way any of us would steal your cup. He will die. You can go ahead and execute him with cause, and the rest of us will become slaves. I mean, they want... Would you say that about any group of people? I wouldn't say that about the elders if we were somewhere, you know. If somebody came out of a restaurant, hey, somebody stole something. I figure it's Ron or Dale. It had to be, you know. I mean, I'm going to put my life at risk because of some dumb thing they did. Um, these guys are absolutely certain. There's no problem. Verse ten. Very well then. Meaning, we'll have severe punishment for this, but he's not going to go as far as they suggested. He, representing Joseph, his administrative assistant, says, Let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. Meaning he's kind of power of attorney speaking for Joseph there. But the rest of you will be free from blame. So there's going to be severe punishment, lifelong slavery uh, for Joseph's household. Verse 11, each of them quickly, quickly because they're happy. Go ahead. You know, if a police, policeman wants to stop me and open, open my trunk or whatever, feel free. Look at the whole car. In fact, you know, dust it up a little bit while you're there. I mean, I got nothing to hide. That's the good thing about uh, not having anything to hide. They, they said, hey, you know, just real quick, check it out. We'd be glad for you have it. Verse 11, each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground, opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest again. So we start with Reuben, um, ending with the youngest, Benjamin, and they go, first, second, third, fourth? Third. Get down to Benjamin. Hey, we're in the clear. And boom, this happens. It's not a photograph, but there's Benjamin. And look what happens here. They get to the youngest one, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they're all gone. I cannot believe this. Ain't no way. I can't believe their own eyes. This is a nightmare, man. At this, they, 100% of them, Tore their clothes. They're united here. And they all, 100% of them, loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Now, the administrative assistant said, hey, we'll make the guy who stole the cup a slave, and the rest of you guys can go home. But they're not going to leave Benjamin alone. That's huge, okay? These aren't the same people we saw 22 years ago. Let's look at the immediate aftermath. Starting verse 14. Joseph was still in his house, in his mansion, when Judah and his brothers came in, notice Judah is being singled out. He's the guy that, you know, interacted with his daughter-in-law in horrific ways back in chapter 38. And they threw themselves on the ground before Joseph. And Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find out what's going on like that? Right? Uh, and then watch this. Judah speaking for the whole group. How can we, that's not singular, I, but we, all y'all, what can we say to my Lord, to Adonai? They're not as God, but just as somebody over me based on his position, humanly speaking. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? I mean, he's, he's speechless, but he's still talking like a lot of us preachers do. How can, how can we prove our innocence? Like apparently you have to do nowadays in American jurisprudence if you're right of center. Uh, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Whoa. We are now my Lord's slaves, not just Benjamin, but all of us. You ever heard one, one for all, all for one? These guys wouldn't have said that 22 years ago. They were happy to beat up Joseph, throw him in the pit, let him die or kill him, and then all of a sudden, let's make some money off of him, you know? Now it's a whole different ball game. We are my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found with the cup. 100% unity. You've got to see this contrast. Go back to the first chapter of the story, chapter 37. God is in the people changing business. Trust but verify, but don't totalize anybody. Okay, God can and does change people um, in remarkable ways. Verse 3, now Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. That's describing it, not prescribing it. That's not, not a good idea, but it's just a fact. Because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a multicolored jacket. Remember? His brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all of the other brothers. So they hated him, could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, not five minutes later, but a week or two or maybe longer. And he just, I think, naively thinks this is from God. They don't want to hear this. I don't think he's trying to brag. But he said, hey, uh, I've got a dream. And when he told the brothers a dream, they hated him even more. He had said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, that my sheave rose up and stood erect, stood up straight. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. wonder what that means, right? And his brothers said, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you out of your mind? You're the 11th, the 12th. You're just one of the younger ones. Are you really going to rule over us? And what was the answer to that question? Yep, yeah, they sure will. It took a while, for they saw it, but it happened, right? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Now he had another dream. He related to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had another dream. You didn't like the first one? Wait till you hear this. And behold, the sun, the moon, that's mom and dad, and 11 stars are banged down to me. He read it to his father and to his brothers, and even his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow? Ourselves down before you and in the ground. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in the back of his mind. And then drop down to verse 18, chapter 37. Uh, they're out doing their thing. The father sends Joseph out to check on how they're doing their thing with the flocks. And when they saw him, Joseph, with his letter jacket on from a distance, uh, and when he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They're going to kill him one way or the other. Selling into slavery wasn't to pre- prevent his death, but to make some money before he got worked to death. And they said to ne- one another, here comes the dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we'll tell daddy that a wild beast devoured him. Then let's see what's going to become of his dreams. They're going to make it impossible for these dreams to happen. And Reuben, the very oldest one, heard this and said, nah, let's calm down. Let's not take his life uh, Reuben said, let's shed no blood. Let's just throw him in the pit and decide what's going to happen. And Reuben's already in the doghouse, so he was going to try to save Joseph, make points with his dad. But watch this, verse 24. So they took him, threw him into the pit, trying to decide how they're going to kill him. And of course, Reuben's going to try to save the day for his own personal benefit, selfishly. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. This was a water cistern with no water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. That's called cold-blooded man. And they raise their eyes and behold, there's a caravan of slave traders going by. And then J- Judah, Judah, the guy who misbehaved with his daughter-in-law, but who's going to hit the home run in chapter 44 now. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us just to kill him and then cover it up? Come, let us sell him to these slave traders. And then it drops down and we read... Uh, The bottom part of verse 28, thus they brought Joseph into Egypt as a slave to be sold to the highest bidder. Go back to chapter 44. Looking at the immediate aftermath of the test, uh, Benjamin's got the cup. I have no idea how it happened, but we're all going to be in this together. We're now your slaves. We and Benjamin too. Verse 17, but Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man, the one guy who had the cup, who was found to have the couple become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. So he's giving them free free um, pass to go back home. What would they have done 22 years before this? They would have went, Nice knowing you, Ben. Have a nice life, Benji. We're out of here. They're not leaving. Then Judah, the guy with all that baggage, You wouldn't want him to teach, you wouldn't want him to sign up for Super Summer, but I would say based at this point where he is, he would qualify to teach Super Summer, probably do better pulpit ministry than I could do. Then Judah went up to him, Joseph, and said, pardon, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord, but do not be angry with your servant because I know you've got power equal to Pharaoh. You got life and death power. You can have us all killed if you want to, basically. My Lord asked his servants the first time we were there, uh, do you have a father? Do you have any brothers? And we answer, we've got an aged father, and there's a young son. Now he's like 29 or 30 at least now, Benjamin is. But there was a young son born to him in his old age. His brother, Joseph, is dead. They know he's dead because they sold him into slavery 22 years before, even though Joseph's talking to them. And he, Benjamin, is the only one of his mother's sons left, the guy who had the cup in his bag. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down. If you come back for more food, bring Benjamin so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. It's not going to fly if he leaves. uh, Because if he leaves him, if Benjamin leaves and doesn't come back, his father will die. But you told your servants the first time we were there, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you're not going to see my face. You're not going to get any food. Just bottom line. So when we came back to, Your servant, our father, we told him what you said. And then our father said, eventually, after initially saying no, go back and buy a little bit more food. But we said we can't go down. Only if our youngest brother, only Benjamin's with us can we go. We cannot see the man's face. We're not going to be able to transact business at all unless your youngest, um, our youngest brother's with us. Verse 27, your servant, my father said, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Now watch this. We're reading this story in the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective. And you guys know the Old Testament is written before and anticipates the coming of Christ. And we're on the right R-I-G-H-T side of the cross in that sense. But we're looking at the founders of Old Testament Israel here. They are saved by faith in the promised Savior. And we're talking about the These people that are prophesied in scripture as going to be the human line to bring us to Jesus, uh, you know, it's going to be a human being, not an angel an alien, going to be male, not a female, going to be a Semite, uh, not a Gentile, going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all that good stuff. So we're looking at these people here. And again, though we're reading from a New Testament point of view, right? So we've got the advantage of looking at all these promises through the first part of the fulfillment. And we're going to emphasize, uh, imputation here in a minute but let's go back to what he just says he says uh you know that my wife bore me two sons well i thought he had 12 sons he did but he's talking about his favorite wife is it a good idea to have a favorite wife now, it's not even a good idea to have more than one at a time actually you know but uh yeah we're talking about benjamin and joseph here and you guys know that right um, so let's finish this final test. You know that my wife, my favorite wife, Rachel, she bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, uh, surely he's been torn into pieces, because that's what the brother said. And I have not seen him since, so he's dead and gone, as far as I know. Verse 29, if you take this one from me, uh, Joseph's being informed about the whole process of trying to get Benjamin to come this time. If you take this one from me and harm becomes to him, I will bring my gray head down to the grave. It's going to kill me. Verse 30. So now, if the boy, and this is Judah addressing Joseph again directly, the guy he is the prime minister of Egypt. So now, bottom line, if the boy, this 30-year-old boy, is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, uh, he sees the boy's not with him. He's going to die. He's going to kill my dad if I go, come back without him. I, I will not do that. I cannot do that. Uh, they didn't feel like that twenty-two years before, did they? Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down in the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed. This saying talking about himself, Judah, Joseph's servant, guaranteed the boy's safety. When did when did he do that? Go back to verse forty-three, chapter forty-three, verses eight and nine. They're having to talk their dad into letting them take Benjamin back to Egypt to buy the food or they're all going to starve to death. Verse 8, Judah said to his father Israel, also known as Jacob, send the lad with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, not starve to death as a family. We as well as you and your little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, you can... Let me bear the blame before you forever. Now look at this. This is incredible. Your servant, verse 32, chapter 44, your servant Judah himself guaranteed the boy safety to my father. And I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame before you, my father, all of my life. Now then, Joseph, prime minister of Egypt, please let me, your servant Judah, remain here as your slave in the place of the boy and let the boy, Benjamin, return with his brothers. That is a mouthful. That is one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. Talking about hard-to-believe stuff, it's hard to believe a guy that was willing to sell uh, Joseph in the slavery 22 years before is saying, I'll be the slave for the rest of my life. You let him go home. I'm not going home without him. That's not going to happen. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that come on my father. Uh, 22 years earlier, Judah would have been happy, had been happy to sell Joseph into slavery. And if he was the same person, he would have been happy to see him uh, put in slavery now. But now Judah volunteers. And I think this is one of the very best examples of imputation. The gospel is all about imputation. Our sins imputed to Christ and judged. His righteousness imputed to us when we believe. Imputation is the legal application of personal guilt or... Personal virtue to a third party. Three key biblical examples. This one in Genesis 44. That statement is worth the price of admission here. Now please, verse 33. Let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Judah is offering to take Benjamin's place. No more home, no more wives, no more kids. He's going to be a slave and Benjamin gets free. Another great example is found in Onesimus is found in Philemon, verse eighteen. Uh, the book Philemon is Paul's letter about a runaway slave named Onesimus who has become a believer after he ran away from his household, and Paul sends him back uh, and says, "If he owes you anything, if you can't forgive him for the financial uh, and the physical stuff he took when he's when he ran away." Just put that to my account. I will pay it myself. I think he's assuming uh Philemon is too gracious to, to do that. He's going to see Onesimus through a whole new light because he's a whole different person now that he's regenerate. But Paul says, if you can't do that, I get it. I'll pay it myself. But what's the ultimate imputation? Uh, let's look at, I don't know. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. I, I cite this a lot, but it's so important. And I hope, you know, at some point, when you think back on some things you've learned around here, you think about certain verses. I think Second Corinthians 5.21 would be a great one to remember. And they're all good, right? Um, while you're turning to Second Corinthians 5.21, uh, 1 John 2 says, He is the propitiation, the satisfaction of righteous wrath by sacrifice, payment, and offering for our sins and those of the whole world. But then it gets even clearer, if that's possible here, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, God the Father, as the author of the plan of salvation, made him, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the active agent of the plan of salvation, who knew no sin. So Jesus didn't even know sin existed, right? Know there means to experience, to to, to commit sin. He didn't actually experience sin experientially. Uh, he didn't commit sin. He was the sinless, perfect substitute. God the Father made the Lord Jesus Christ who knew no sin, who was sinless, to be sin. Um, My Old Testament professor said that means a sin offering on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sins imputed to Christ and judged everything you've ever done or ever will do that could keep you out of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ paid that moral, eternal, spiritual debt in his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And when you trust Christ for that, by God's grace, not only is that payment applied to you, but his righteousness is applied to you, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That means that if we live a good enough Christian life, we'll earn our way into heaven by being a really righteous Christian. No, that means at the moment of saving faith, the payment is wiped clean, the debt is wiped clean, and the righteousness of Christ applies to your account. God does that forensically. Philippians 3, you can go back to Genesis 44 if you want to, but Philippians 3 is another great one. This is Paul's testimony, of a recovering religious unbeliever, and he says, as a believer, I am found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, which is imputed to Dustin, to Stephanie, to Doug on the basis of faith. Who are we trusting in? We're trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone. Go back to uh, Genesis 44. So I love that doctrine, such an important doctrine. Uh, you can't believe that um, some pretty famous uh, preachers, especially in Europe, are denying that doctrine now, which is unbelievable. But yeah, we see Judah as a totally different person here, uh, saying, put me in his place, I'll be the slave, he goes free. And the point is, these are the same men, but they're different people. Uh, they acknowledged, recognized their guilt in selling Joseph into slavery back in chapter 42 verse 21. They didn't lie to their father about Simeon and come back home and say, we don't know what happened to Simeon. He must have been attacked by a wild animal, but don't worry about it. Uh, they fessed up and they said, he's back there. We got to go back and preserve him in 4236. Uh, They didn't resent baby brother Benjamin's special blessing at the feast there where he got more food and five cake pops instead of just one. They trusted each other, stepped together when accused of theft. They never once thought about uh, bailing out on Benjamin. They didn't abandon, abandon Benjamin when it looked like he'd be enslaved for the rest of his life. They recognized their predicament was tied to their own sin against Jacob. God's at work in this, and we really kind of deserve this at one level. They offered themselves to be enslaved with Benjamin, they were generally concerned about how this would affect their father. 22 years before, were they concerned about how J- Joseph's death would affect their father? Not really. As long as they had an alibi. That's all they wanted, right? Now they said, we will not do this. And, and I think Judah's speaking for the group. Saying, said, we can't do this, Jack. We're not going to do this. We're not going to go back without him. You know, we can all stay here. And J- Judah specifically says, I'll take his spot. Judah's willing to be enslaved. Wow. Uh, incredible. I'm going to stop there with the ultimate uh, cliffhanger. And you can read ahead if you want to. But do me a favor. Don't do it. <laughs> okay? Let me tell you what it means next week. Now, it's, it, it's incredible. You think this was interesting what Judas says, just waiting. Ani Yosef. That's what he said in Hebrew. This guy who was an Egyptian suddenly says, I am Joseph. What was our bus driver's name? Yossi, which is diminutive, it means Joey. His name is Joseph. And Ani is I am Yosef. He's going to say that to him in Hebrew. And uh, it won't be a dry eye in the house. But let me finish up this way. Can't teach an old dog new tricks, but that's okay. I don't know if that's true or not, but we're not old dogs, and God is in the character-changing business And I think a big part of this, and you see this in the brothers now, they've passed this test with flying colors. I'm totally convinced, check me out in heaven, that Judah is saying what everybody else in that group is thinking. They really believe this. We're not going without him. This would kill our dad. And what we did 22 years ago is something we we can't excuse, and we're not going to try to. But we're going to do it right this time. They're totally changed because of the grace of God in their lives. So, you know, to do that, you're going to have to embrace God's program over your personal preferences and priorities. You've got to refuse to rationalize or redefine your sin or your favorite people's sins or your kids' sins or your parents' sins. You're going to have to deal with the issues that come up. And you need to be more gracious to people than they deserve. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to, by your Holy Spirit, to process this truth and this text, not just as information, but as spiritually transforming um, spiritual food and help us to embrace it. And I pray it would change the way we think about you and ourselves and other people. We thank you that you are in the people changing business. You don't just give us a get out of hell free card. When by your grace, we come to see and trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You give us the capacity to be a whole new person and you work the good things and the bad things and everything to drive us in that direction. Help us to see and believe that and be responded to that by your Spirit. We thank you we're not, any of us, old dogs. We can and should be learning new tricks. And I pray that we would actively seek to embrace your kingdom over our careers, your priorities over our preferences. Help us to recognize and confess and isolate the sins in our lives, and our Christian lives, rather than just kind of papering over them. And help us to be very giving and very forgiving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.